one of the biggest challenges the world faces that we have to start making you know, progress on is climate change. You know, why is it that we're so focused on what's the next app that'll make somebody a billionaire and the leap ahead in technology? Where's the leap ahead for technology that'll solve some of the problems that we're talking about here and not just make another billionaire? would not come in with conventional forces. You would go after the United States where it is most vulnerable. And that is because our society, our economy, our communications, our military, our intelligence, everything we do relies on the computer and the internet. If something has been put on the computer or the internet, it can be compromised. It has been compromised. President Biden has entered office as the 46th President of the United States. He brings with him an ambitious set of foreign policy goals and a deep bench of leaders in national security and foreign policy. What should be first on his agenda in the next 100 days? What do his appointees tell us about the direction of U.S. foreign policy? We have a lot to tackle, so we're doing things a little differently this episode. We've invited some of our favorite leaders and thinkers in global affairs to sit down with us at the World Affairs Council of Connecticut and break down all the recent developments. In today's roundtable, you'll hear from Luke Kinetic, Senior National Security and Public Affairs Professional, formerly with the McCain Institute and the Office of the Secretary of Defense. Arthur House, former Cybersecurity Risk Officer for the State of Connecticut, who has also held leadership positions in the Office of the Director of National Intelligence and the National Security Council. Megan Torrey, CEO of the World Affairs Council of Connecticut. Moderated by me, Amanda Jolly. We have a lot to talk about, so let's get started. We hope you enjoy this bonus roundtable episode of State of the World. To kick us off, we are entering a new administration, inheriting a very chaotic world right now. What do you see as the key foreign policy priorities in the first 100 days of the Biden administration? Well, the way I look at it is the how do we deal with that broad post-World War II setting that is now being called the liberal international order? I don't know if it's liberal or conservative, but um, after World War I, the Great Depression, World War II, weary of war, weary of chaos, um, the United States obviously was a major factor in the victory of World War II, and we set up a lot of the standards, organizations, means of dealing with each other that prevail to today. The International Monetary Fund, the World Bank to create some economic stability, um, international trade, trade in capital goods, in labor, um, and in finance, uh, the entire United Nations system, collective security, NATO, I mean, all of that, which comprises uh, the post-World War II um, world that we live in, and the United States led it. And now, it's not to be said that that solution was perfect. Um, of course not. It needs to evolve. It needs to be improved. It needs to continue to grow, to adapt to the modern world. But I, I would say the most, the most uh, basic challenge facing the Biden administration is to answer, where are we on that? Uh, the United States has declined leadership. It has turned its back on a lot of those organizations, quit some of them, indicated its lack of confidence in NATO. Um, shown that, that America first and we uh, caring about the international order that we helped create is a secondary matter. So I think in the most broadest sense, Amanda, that what, you, what we need to do, what Biden needs to do, is to affirm that the United States does take world leadership uh, seriously. 
and that it will uh, not be an America first country, but one that seeks to lead a world which is just and has benefits for, for all members and, and is a major part of that to reaffirm our, our alliances. Well, I, I'm happy to jump in. I mean, I agree that kind of, you know, all that flow from Bretton Woods and, you know, where it stands today, but, you know, even more, and I'm sure Art would agree, I'm guessing, you know, with, with the nuts and bolts of that. I mean, you read articles uh, talk about specific meetings where, you know, we, the U.S. hasn't showed up and, and Germany or a whole host of, you know, folks that we normally have worked with in the past uh, are there and, and are helping drive uh, uh, the agenda. And, you know, I don't think it's as simple as, uh, power competition or great power uh, competition. Certainly that factors into it, but it's just, you know, the big things in front of us. We see it every day, the information environment and what governs that and, and, and how the rules get made for that going forward. And then things that used to be talked about a whole lot in terms of uh, security and international relations before the last four years, and, and they have been talked about, I missed it, but, but water and energy. Now we have heard a little bit of talk about space, but, you know, stand up uh, headquarters on the quick is one thing, really talking about uh, what it means uh, for, for the U.S. and the, and the world to re-engage in space um, is another. So, you know, the priorities are, are to engage against that. You know, we haven't mentioned the pandemic, not because it isn't foremost uh, on, our, on our mind. It, it factors in a huge way through all of this, as do the, the people. I mean, you know, we're all reading about Tony Blinken and, and, and you know, uh, his experience and how he's going to apply that. Jake Sullivan, we probably won't read as much about the National Security Council, but make a young, you know, establishing cyber uh, security policy and other folks like that or who I'll be uh, keeping up with. I mean, so how they kind of come out with their initial uh, initiatives and where folks like us and, and industry and others can kind of grab onto that is, is what I'll be looking at. Uh, I guess sort of what you would see as a as a traditional start of a of a, of a serious administration. I think both Art and in and, and Luke make really great points about reestablishing um, United States leadership in the world and what United States leadership in the world has meant over the last four years and how that perception has changed. We all know that the globe is in still in the middle of a global pandemic, um, a global health crisis, which is also a global financial crisis. Um, so how America will again take up the mantle of leadership is going to be an important um, thing to watch within this administration. And of course, um, you know, all of the usual suspects and usual foreign policy issues still remain. Um, China, Russia, you know, with one of the things we haven't really talked about, which I hope we'll hear more about from Art, is the cyber attacks, which were huge and enormous. Um, and so the, how the United States is going to reestablish itself as a leader is going to be, you know, an interesting thing to watch over the next four years. I'd like to note that Luke made a point that the other countries that we deal with have had to cope with the lack of American leadership. So you don't just flip a switch and say, okay, we're back. Let's get back to exactly the way things used to be. Um, I mean, it's like anything, any trust that has been breached. I mean, uh, a cheating spouse, uh, a person who has been a, a drug addict and then wants to go free, somebody who has embezzled money in your company and is back. Now, okay, maybe all that's fixed now, but it's very hard to forget what happened. And so the United States cannot just say, hey, new president, let's get back to where we were, because a lot of major countries have had to 
have had to deal with the absence of American leadership, sometimes at best, and sometimes um, negative influence where the United States was working against the interests of that organization. So it's going to take some forgiveness, some establishment of credibility, uh, and some hard work to set a new course. And, and, it, and it will not be exactly as it was in the past. So just kind of set the stage for anyone who might be listening. The Biden cabinet has been off to a pretty inauspicious, slow start. They had no confirmations when he took office. And going through the additional nominees, can we go through Secretary of State Antony Blinken? Any thoughts? He's very knowledgeable and he's worked extensively with the president. Um, I think... Secondly, having having been at the State Department, the the career diplomats are going to turn around and say he's one of us. Uh, he understands us. So th- those are your three key things. Does he have the support of his organization? He does. Uh, does he know what he's doing? He does. And does the president respect him and, and has worked with him? So I, I agree. I, I just add. I think he's he's worked across. Uh, parties well also. I just know yeah. from, I didn't yeah. know him that well, or, you know, I don't know him, but I know of him that well, but, but just sitting at the McCain Institute in the past, it was a name that would come up and people say, oh yeah, this guy, he, he works across, you know. Yeah. I think he has a very big challenge ahead of him, but I think um, as an administrator, it was a very good choice. Next up, we have someone who spoke with us recently at the World Affairs Council, General Lloyd Austin, Secretary of Defense. General thoughts. You know, some ways you think absolutely the right person, right? If you're going to rename bases and take on some of the things that you need to take on now, like white supremacy uh, in the ranks, his kind of character and and discipline and and experience and and having had the helm of CENTCOM. I think some of those other things about, you know, if you're taking that 20 or 30 year look out, who who am I to say, you know, I haven't been in those uh, positions, but I, I think you worry a little bit there. So maybe, maybe to Art's earlier point, you know, hopefully he's not intimidated and he puts a lot of pretty smart people around him. He's very smart as well, mind you, but you see what I mean. <laughs> yeah, he, co- he commands respect. And I, I think it's extremely important that the tone be set, the sort of the locker room talk among top officers. You are not going to find uh, any of this uh, racist discussions that might come to the attention of the Secretary of Defense. Uh, I mean, it's, it's a, it, the fact that he is there is very therapeutic for the country. And I, let me just also add, I, I disagree with our law uh, banning military officers from becoming Secretary of State until they've been out for seven years. What, what is absolutely essential is we have civilian control of the military. So they, they, they should be a former, not a current. But once you're out, I can't think of anybody uh, who is more um, aware of the dangers and reluctant to throw soldiers in harm's way than a four-star officer. They know these people. They, they know what it's like to deal with the death of their soldiers, to talk to their families. They know what military cannot do. And often you find when you have these discussions that some of the most bellicose people are the civilians. And it's the military who are saying, be careful, and then what? And what are you going to do next? So. I, I, the fact that he is a former general does not worry me in the slightest. I think he's a sane, solid guy who commands respect. I think he was a very good choice. And I, Art, I want to reiterate what you said. Um, you know, having done global security now, global security for him now for several years, it is absolutely true that there is no one more reluctant um, to to put the troops in in harm's way than 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 a four star general. 
And there is no one who will talk about the importance of diplomacy first than a four-star general and the importance of, of um, you know, non-military solutions being the first line of defense anywhere. I think Austin has a, a huge job taking over the Pentagon, um, like Luke said, dealing with white supremacy in the ranks, um, but also dealing with the complete modernization and, uh, you know, technological advancement of, of our military forces and keeping up with our near-peer near peer competitors like China in places like cyber and places like the space domain. Um, and that is going to take a lot of transformation and a lot of um, bold thinking. I'm jumping in just because you know I said hey you ought to put people around him. You know John Kirby as the new press secretary that's hugely important and one to watch. I mean I the briefings, <laughs> the openness, you know, the flow of information there I think is so important. And then Kathy Hicks is as Deputy Secretary of Defense and what she brings and and, and and her respect and the like. So you see you see um, you know tremendous talent going in there. But that but the the Kirby and what happens is for how, how the Pentagon meets the press is is something to really watch. Hopefully it, it we see a dramatic change there. Two more I want to bring up um, just for general thoughts if if you have any. Uh, Avril Haynes. Well you know I work for the director of national intelligence. Uh, that's a tough job. I think she's fully qualified. Uh, she's bright. She's very good appointment. But the level of difficulty is higher than the ones we've talked about. Um, in many ways, the CIA still does not accept the in many ways the existence of the legitimacy of the Office of National Intelligence, Office of the Director of National Intelligence. We still do not have as integrated intelligence as we should, where sharing is enforced. Um, it is hard to have 16 separate agencies, many of whom do report to the Secretary of Defense. Uh, to bring them together, to have them all marching in the same line, not cooperating as a team and so forth. Uh, I think she's good. By the way, um, the intelligence field has had a, a remarkable and justified growth of women. Um, it, a lot of intelligence is, is brain power. I mean, it's collecting, it's analysis, it's operations, but it's trying to figure out what's going to happen, in which case um, the kind of Oh, stamina that you associate with the Marine Corps, um, you know, or the hand-eye coordination of a pilot and so forth are not as relevant. And so therefore it is understandable that it's high time we had a, a woman head the uh, Office of the Director of National Intelligence as we recently had at CIA. So I think she's uh, an excellent point, uh, appointment. I think the ODNI is a work in progress. Um, it is, uh, it has not been well understood by the outside world. Not every president has backed it up. And the effort to reform the uh, intelligence community post 9-11 is a work in progress. And so um, Godspeed to her, but she's got her hands full. Last I wanted to bring up was Linda Thomas-Greenfield, potential new ambassador to the UN. I think they're the same kind of thing, just to to see what sort of tone is, is struck and then how these players are working together. Kind of jumping back to art, I mean, I, I have my eye on Bill Burns. You know, CIA is not going to be cabinet level, and he has, you know, unbelievable bureaucratic experience all tied to state. So how these kind of pieces uh, 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 fit together? And, you know, I, I know we moved on to UN, but CIA has been pretty public-facing at times with think tank events and other things that sort of kind of went away. It's a little bit controversial. I wonder how Burns will take that. That's just one facet uh, of things, but just how much we'll kind of understand in the, uh, in, in, in the public uh, 
domain. You know, I think the UN ambassador, she has tremendous experience with Africa, and I'm more focused on Africa than I've uh, ever been having joined Power Africa. So I'm, I'm excited from uh, that standpoint. And, you know, you could argue before, well, 9-11, so much water under the bridge, but there was a time when space and Africa were things that we were really, really wanting to, 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 to look at. And uh, hopefully we're, we're at a place where we can start getting back to that because so much of our future is tied to places like Africa and space. Two different things to be very sure, but I think you understand where I'm coming from. I'm glad Luke mentioned um, Burns at CIA. Now, CIA is very quick to turn to a new director and say, are you with us or not? And if you're with us, you will defend us. Uh, and do never forget that the CIA reports directly to the president of the United States. The hell with the ODNI and Sometimes we should cooperate with the other lesser intelligence agencies, but we're number one and you have to be out in front making sure we are or we won't support you. Well, Burns is, is, is an experienced person. He's tough. He's good. He's strong. And the fact that he underst obviously understands, he was, he, I, I, having somebody of that intelligence, uh, that experience, that background in a critical position, um, I, I think is a great uh, appointment. And um you know, give people new challenges. Uh, I, they, clearly, he can do all this. He understands intelligence. He's been a consumer of intelligence for three decades. So um, I sort of welcome that new mix. And having somebody like that in the room when things are discussed is important. I, I got a question why the head of the CIA is not on the National Security Council staff when the head of AID is. Maybe they both ought to be, but there's a tough call. Um, and... Um, if not Burns, then you have to have uh, Avril Haines, the ODNI, should be there. Intelligence should be at the National Security Council meeting, certainly. One person we haven't mentioned yet is John Kerry in his newly created position. Um, any general thoughts on him in the role and the role itself? Well, I know that one of the biggest challenges the world faces that we, uh, you know, uh, have to start making you know progress on is climate change. So um, if anything, it is a big statement about the challenges ahead, the urgency of climate change, um, and the need for the world to make uh, you know start making some progress to combat combat climate change. Yeah, it's funny um, you mentioned John Kerry. You know, Kerry has sway, but but he also can can rub people the wrong way as well. So. Um, I don't know. I hope he. Uh, I hope he goes about his job uh, uh, effectively, but diplomatically. Okay. Now, the key to what Luke just said, Amanda, to me, is Sullivan. Um, I, given who John Kerry is, you sure don't want him out there rattling around, taking shots at you, or feeling unincluded. I mean, he's a huge powerhouse, uh, and you got to use him. But you've got to use them as a team player, which gets to Sullivan, the head of the National Security Council. Now, one of the rules, which is very little written about, but is key, is how do you deal with these huge egos and these powerful people and keep them all in harness, pulling in the same direction? I often think of it as the nine o'clock call. And when I was a, I was a real youngster uh, working for Scowcroft, sometimes I had what they called the red phone duty, which was I was in the other office and I could hear the call. I couldn't say anything. And I'd take notes and if there's something to be followed up on, I'd note it. But in that call, who did you have? You had Secretary of Defense, Secretary of State, Head of CIA, um, Scoopcroft, maybe a couple other players, depending on what's going on. And it was at nine o'clock every single morning and it 
could last five minutes or a half hour. And basically what happened, here's where we're going. And then, frankly, there were some times, I mean, I remember especially times it was extremely difficult to get Don Rumsfeld into the team because he had his own thoughts and disagreed with what people were doing and this and that. And it was up to the skill of the National Security Advisor to remind a cabinet member, who some of them were very powerful, sorry, this is where the president's headed. And every so often, what the National Security Advisor needs to do is say, okay, I will take this to the president. And quickly, it's essential that quickly thereafter, the president comes down and affirms, backs up the National Security Advisor. What's the message? Stop screwing around and going your own way, cabinet member. You're on this team and I'm setting the, I'm setting the direction. Now, if you do that effectively, after a while, the other cabinet members know, don't mess with the NSC advisor. He speaks, he or she speaks for the, the president. And um, the shepherding roles, heading in the same direction, is absolutely essential. So why do I talk about Sullivan? Because you mentioned Kerry. Kerry ran for president, you know, secretary of state. I mean, this is not a bit player. And if he gets involved in this, he's going to have an awful lot of constructive things he can do. But you also got to one of the prices you pay for having high-powered, experienced players in there is making sure that they, they cooperate with each other. Excellent. That is a great insight to have, too, especially as people are forming their dynamics, as we're trying to figure out how to make all of these different high-level positions work together cohesively for one foreign policy. Um, and as Luke was saying, this might be a difficult transition because the Trump administration has not made it easy to smoothly transition to the next administration. The a slew of last minute decisions by the Trump administration have really thrown some wrenches in the works. We have the Houthis declared a terrorist organization in Yemen. We have uh, the declaration of genocide of the Uyghurs in China. We have a, a new uh, position on Cuba. We have an attempt to, to establish diplomatic tie to Taiwan. So with all those last minute wrenches in the, in the works, how does the Biden administration pick up all those different balls that are in the air right now? I mean, I think you make a really good point about the, sort of the unprecedented nature of the moves that um, Secretary Pompeo made in the last few weeks of the Trump administration, really sort of shifting so many things. Um, but I, again, I think that we're all dealing with, with the usual suspects in foreign policy, China, Russia, Iran, North Korea, um, getting out of forever wars in Afghanistan and in Iraq, um, climate change, uh, cyber challenges, and and rebuilding our position with, with our allies, particularly in Europe and, and within NATO. The most authoritative statement on this uh, came from Biden's article entitled Why America Must Lead Again. And it was his basic laying out of this is the foreign policy case I am making to be president. Um, and when I read that, I circled a sentence. Says the next U.S. president will have to address the world as it is in January 2021, and picking up the pieces will be an enormous task. Now, I think the greatest importance is picking up those pieces because the world is not sure what our priorities are. Are, are we? Where do we stand for the institutions we created? What are our foreign policy priorities? Are, can we be reliable? If we say something, will we follow through on it? Will we act to uh, dampen those who, who resist us? Um, is this a process of our having skin in the game for world order, 
or is it more transactional? I mean, there's no question that um, the previous president saw this as, as doing deals, as transactions. Uh, and Biden does not. I think Biden sees the, uh, the large number of issues that have been left in abeyance. So I think the rest of the world's turning around and saying, okay, you got an experienced foreign affairs person. What are his priorities? What is he going to do? Is, is he going to be um, institutional about these? Is he going to appoint good people? Is he going to be clear about what the priorities are? Is he going to follow through or not? Because if not, we, the rascals of the world, are going to try to take advantage of him. Uh, allies will have to find, come with their own solutions, which they've been doing for a couple of years. Uh, the autocrats and the bad guys will find whenever there's a hole, you try to drive a truck through it. So I think the main challenge here is, is really defining a, a global view and specifics on all these things we really care about, the economy and, pand and the pandemic, where we stand vis-a-vis -vis Russia and China, NATO, I mean, all those kinds of things. They require statements because I don't think anybody in the world can definitively stay where, say where the United States stands on them right now. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with all that. Uh, and to me, how that parses out in terms of technical solutions, you know, I don't guess you just want the technocrats to take over, but boy, it sure seems a time to, you know, what are the basic standards and measures and and then what are your agreed strategies and then how that ties to, to democracy. I mean, I, I've talked to, you know, a lot of folks in the last couple of years that, that say, gosh, you know, in some respects we're right to point out where there are these undemocratic tendencies, but 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 we're hypocritical. So you know, it's how you how you square that. Of course, you have things like Taiwan and Hong Kong and and Russia and Navalny, things that are right in front of you. So you have to uh, respond to that right now. But kind of the the longer game, which I think is are we reliable? How our actions and, and strategies, and you know how we compete with some of these technical uh, challenges out there in a way that upholds democratic. Uh, uh, traditions, but, but, you know, makes clear that we have resolve. And Amanda, one of the things that, you know, we hear time and time again, sitting in this chair, almost, um, almost every speaker will tell us that in order for us to lead in the world again, one of the most important things that we can do is get our own house in order, right? So we have to deal with structural racism. We have to do with, you know, white supremacy. We have to deal with um, what, you know, what's recently happened, challenges to our democracy, to our, to our health systems. There's a lot that we have to do internally and domestically to get our own house in order um, to once again, you know, figure out how we can be leaders in the world. To that end, if we want to dive into one specific example where the U.S. moral authority has been explicitly challenged, it's the question of China, U.S. relations. Mm -hmm. We've heard repeatedly from China that the U.S. has no moral authority after seeing what happened in Lafayette Square, after seeing the Black Lives Matter protests, after seeing what ha what's happening at the border. So, as, as that relationship is shifting on the world stage, does anyone have a handle on what the Biden approach to China seems to be? Two, two points, man. One, I thought the line in the inauguration speech uh, from Biden that um, we've made some mistakes, but we're back. The, the message to the world is that democracy was challenged, but it has, it has thrived. I think the United States, in terms of moral posturing, has to recognize that we're imperfect. It's not a it's not a straight line. 
it goes up and down and we have things that we're embarrassed about, but we continually to try to do the right thing. And that's what we're doing right now. So I think if we try to take an absolutist view as to the morality of the United States, you have a difficult case to defend. If you take the view that the United States is imperfect, but is headed in these directions, these are the things we believe in and admitting our own problems. This is where we think the world ought to be headed. That's our strength. And, and I think that is defensible. I remember I was, I was in China just after um, it started opening up to the world. And the thinking in the United States was that China would join the world system. Uh, and wouldn't that be exciting? And it's a huge market and everything else and so on. Well, turns out that's completely wrong. China is not joining the world system. China is seeking to make its own system. And, and that includes all kinds of things on trade, includes um, covering over reefs in, the, in, in international waters and, and, and putting in runways and, and saying, this is ours. And by the way, all the oil within a number of miles around this is ours as well, and you stay out of it. Well, some of those belong to the Philippines and Vietnam and, 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 and other countries. So we will be challenged by, by, by China. Uh, what do we do with Taiwan? Uh, what, what do we do um, with the negation of freedom of passage uh, in international waters, which the rest of the world says, but China says, no, this is our territorial water right now. So I think the, China has historically been hesitant to get into a shooting war with a big power. You know, we don't want to do that either, but it, it is going to call for strength. It is going to call for continuing to drive American Navy ships through those contested waters and making it clear to China, we know where you stand, this is where we stand, and let's make this predictable so we don't get into a shooting war with each other. So I think in, in economics and in military things, we still need, we're still in the feeling each other out and finding out where it goes. I think it will take uh, some backbone. Uh, it will take some delineation of lines. This is acceptable. This is not. It's going to be one of the most difficult areas of the world for uh, for the administration to deal with. I completely agree that China will continue to be one of the most contentious relationships to watch, um, not only economically, but also militarily, particularly in um, in the space domain and, and how, um, how we remain competitive in space uh, with China, as well as, um, you know, things like Art mentioned, the South China Sea, uh, Taiwan, in, and watching what happens in Hong Kong. So with, with all those topics on the table, with all of your expertise that we have here on the panel, from cyber to space to defense, as we look through all the, the issues that we're going to have to confront coming up, what's the one thing that keeps each of you up at night when you think about foreign affairs, foreign policy, and these big global issues that we're going to have to address? Well, I, yeah, I mean, I'll cheat a little bit. Um, what keeps me up nights lately is trying to better understand energy, you know, and you could add water and other things to that. But and, and of course, it's because it's, it's what my new job uh, relates to. But it keeps me up. Like I'm excited, though. I think the potential of electrification and what we could do. Uh, but then you also realize, oh, my gosh, the challenge. I don't want to go on too lengthy here, but I recently circled back to Tom Friedman's Flat, Hot and Crowded. You know, that was what, 2008, 2009? I don't think much has changed. I really don't. You put all that together, you know, uh, what people's expectations are and what the demographics and geography tells you. And, and you know, we got to be uh, uh, leaning forward. Um, now I'm really jumping around on here, but I just read a book called Uncanny Valley about Silicon Valley. 
And it's interesting. You kind of get a, you feel like you get a flavor of how things kind of work out there. But the part that bugged me is, you know, why is it that we're so focused on what's the next app that'll make somebody a billionaire and the leap ahead in technology? You know, hey, I'm a capitalist at some level. I'm okay with that. Where's the leap ahead for technology that solves some of the problems that we're talking about here, not just make another billionaire? So that's the, you know, composite of what keeps me up at night. <laughs> There are two things that keep me up at night, and that's the, the vulnerability to cyber attack and to some kind of space attack. I think those could be catastrophic for the world. Well, I've already talked about too much, perhaps, about um, reestablishing some sense of world order. Uh, I, I do think that's absolutely first. That we have, if we were to have four more years under the Trump administration, we would have had chaos and unpredictability and wars breaking out and so on and so on. I, so I, I do think knitting it back together and giving us semblance of order is, is absolutely critical. About cyber, obviously, that's a field I've gotten into. You know, the, the history of the, the Maginot Line in France and everywhere else, we're, we're always fighting the last war. And the vulnerability of the United States, which was just thrown starkly in our face by this latest uh, Russian breach, is huge. It's extensive. We still, do, we still don't even know the extent of it. Can you elaborate on sort of the magnitude of, of, of that cyber attack? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. They, they, they came through a private firm, uh, which provides security services to U.S. government agencies and to private businesses. They got administrative privileges, and, and they could replicate through that particular company invasions, malware. And we still don't know the extent of it. Uh, but it's, it, it is large. It got into very, very key U.S. government uh, agencies and a lot of businesses. And if ever there were a, a, a stark reminder that there are threats that we don't fully understand that we, we can't control, that's that's why it's, to me, important. Somebody would be crazy to try to put a naval attack on the United States or to try to invade with an army. I mean, you know, conventional warfare. But I come back in 1999, two Chinese uh, colonels at the People's Liberation War College wrote a strategy plan. What would be the outcome of a non-conventional war between China and the United States? And it's now available, it was classified for a year, you can get it on Google now. But they wrote that conventional warfare, probably the United States wins, meaning non-nuclear. This was 99 and China has increased its conventional power significantly since then. However, China could prevail if we were to cripple the United States public utilities critical infrastructure and pin the United States down at home. That would weaken the United States to the extent that yes, China could prevail. Well, they can do all of that. It's been demonstrated. They are in our public utilities. And suppose you shut off the water supply to Los Angeles, or you cut the generation and distribution of electricity to Northern Virginia and the Washington DC area, uh, or you cut off the flow of natural gas to New England. I mean, and all of those are entirely possible that we aren't ready for it. Uh, we do not have national policies to address it. The last administration got rid of the national, the cybersecurity leadership it had on the National Security Council and in Homeland Security. Now they've been reappointed and they're coming on board, but we have not rehearsed those drills of what we would do. And a lot of it depends on the states. Now, I mean, in, in Connecticut, we have, uh, we're very good at hurricanes and floods and uh, ice storms. We should be. Uh, they happen all the time. But we need to rehearse, take that experience and expand it and rehearse what would we do if we were without electricity for four months and we had no drinking water and hospitals were shut down 
banks could not verify that you had a banking account. I mean, what do you do? Do you move people to the water or do you bring water to the people? Uh, how do you work on a regional basis? How do you coordinate with the federal government? So what I worry about is it would be, a, obviously it would be an act of war, uh, but wars have always happened. We have never lived since humans have existed in a period, a prolonged period without war. So what will the next one look like? And if you were, you and I, all of us were to sit around saying, how would you attack the United States? You would not come in with conventional forces. You would go after the United States where it is most vulnerable. And that is because our society, our economy, our communications, our military, our intelligence, everything we do relies on the computer and the internet. If something has been put on the computer or the internet, it can be compromised. It has been compromised. And as a society, we are just not there. We do not recognize that. We do not have national policies guiding our defense against it. And we don't work with the states, which would be the first lines of defense. And so uh, I realize, I'm, I'm, I guess I'm getting a little revved up here, but I've been working on this thing for several years and I still do not see it being taken seriously. So I am concerned about it. I think what keeps me up at night is the idea of autocracies using technological systems that are developed in the private sector or that we as citizens just willingly give our information to or subscribe to. And in that vulnerability, we don't, we make ourselves the threat. You know, we, we've seen it in action. We've seen it, the pervasive racism. We've seen, we've seen it cause genocide. We've seen specifically social media apps and the autocratic control of social media apps. And I think the idea that these tools can be locked down, weaponized, and used to control populations around the world without global coalitions or without strong moral leadership around them is a, is a really concerning trend that keeps me up at night. <laughs> I think you've caused me some sleep now too, yeah. Well, this leads us, we were kind of stepped into a threat heavy note. And that leads us to one of our one of our final questions, which is your take on the state of the world right now. I think the state of the world right now is precarious. I think we are still in the midst of a global pandemic that is if impacting, you know, millions and millions of people around the world. And that the economic repercussions from that are, are devastating for so many. And I think um, until we can get our hands around that, until we can start making progress against the pandemic, um, the state of the world isn't great. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I, I think probably we've all sadly been associated with something like a tornado or seen a devastating event. And it, at some level, you're amazed at when recovery and relief start happening, it's how quickly you, you can recover. And, 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 and I, I guess that's what we all hope and, and pray for, although I've read other things that say after major pandemics that it takes maybe 30, 40 years. So probably both are, are true uh, to a certain extent. But I, I'm an optimist at the end of the day. I do think that there are so many uh, ways where, you know, and the idea that a, that a bigger middle class and people stepping forward, I mean, it's challenging when you think of population growth and other things, but, but I mean, mankind is going to progress. And then we, we, uh, we, we have up to now, and I don't see any real reason why we can't still do it, but well, there's an awful lot to do. I just say, I agree with Luke. Uh, I would say what's the state of the world is very unsettled and a lot of threats and challenges, but we have to celebrate the fact we've got a chance to change things and make it better. And uh, let's just make the best of it. 
I will kick off uh, our new tradition of ending every State of the World roundtable with a endorsement or recommendation from each panelist. My endorsement this week is To Repair the World by Paul Farmer. The relentless optimism in this book is something that I think I want to take with me and I want to apply to some of the your final thoughts about the state of the world. And also, if uh, I couldn't get away with not plugging, State of the World podcast, newly released in 2021. <laughs> Everyone needs to subscribe and rate. Um, now, if you want to go counterclockwise, Art, do you have an endorsement for us? Well, clearly, State of the World podcast is the most important. Uh, I would say a, a, a series of articles written by people such as um, David Brooks, George Will, and others who look at and call for the resurgence of international internationalism in the Republican Party. And the absence of that internationalist uh, Republican has been a huge detriment to our ability to lead internationally. And so those calling for that, I think that's a new chapter. I mean, let it bring it forth. We know it's there. We know there are Republicans who are not uh, totally wed to the Trump solution, who are willing to do things in concert with their colleagues in the other party. And I, to me, that is the most important kernel of thought that starts 2021. Uh, Richard Rhodes' book called Energy, so it's a history of uh, energy, and he even points out some of the shortcomings about efficiency, and, and, and he does cover renewables, but gives that a little bit of short shrift, but just the challenge of change. And, and, and then in tandem with that, I read uh, Chernow's book on uh, John D. Rockefeller. So um, very interesting, uh, the, you know, unique American in so many uh, respects. Great point. Megan, what's your endorsement? Besides State of the World podcast in 2021, um, my endorsement is uh, the book, The Kill Chain by Christian Burroughs. I know we talked about um, General Lloyd Austin taking the helm at the Pentagon, um, but I think when you read this book, it really talks about the urgency in which we need to transform our, our military in order to keep us secure, the technological advances um, that that you know, we, we should be thinking about now. It really is an eye-opening book. Um, and so it is highly recommended by me. Again, Christian Bros, The Kill Chain. Excellent recommendation. And if anyone listening needs a little bit more incentive to pick it up, we will have an entire episode dedicated to The Kill Chain with Christian Bros on State of the World uh, coming up in 2021. That does it for this week's bonus roundtable episode of State of the World. Our thanks to Luke and Art for joining us today. Don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. For more content like this, follow us on Twitter and Instagram at CTWAC or visit our website at ctwac.org. Thank you for joining us for State of the World. Until next time. <laughs>